All right, with uh, Paul and uh, Peggy and the family on vacation this morning, we have a, a guest speaker. This is uh, uh, one of our own, Alex Kirk here. Alex is a, a student at gordon Conwell Seminary, finishing up his degree. And uh, this fall, he taught our uh, morning uh, Sunday class, Sunday school class, an overview of the Bible. And I know myself and many others were uh, very blessed by it. And uh, we uh, hope to be today as well. So, Alex Kirk. Good morning. It is a pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to actually close it. And I'll have you open it in just a minute. We've been working through Matthew 5 as a part of a sermon series on kingdom living. And this first chapter on the Sermon on the Mount contains a lot of memorable passages. And so I'm wondering if you can call out some of the memorable passages of Matthew 5. Yes, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the Beatitudes, right? That's how the Sermon on the Mount starts. What else? Yep, that's actually in Matthew chapter 6, but we're getting there. Yep, what else? Yep, meek will inherit the earth, also a beatitude. Love your enemies. Good, that's in a couple weeks. It's still in Matthew chapter 5. We haven't quite got there yet. Hunger and thirst after sight. Yeah, that's a beatitude. Beatitudes are really well known. What about you are the salt of the earth and light of the world? Remember that passage where Paul has taught about lust and divorce last week? Next week we'll look at turn the other cheek. I think most of you know that passage. One of the passages that is not as well known and which no one has mentioned so far is actually the sermon text for today which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. It's Jesus' teaching on oaths. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up now to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And I would suggest to you this morning that this is not one of the memorable passages on the Sermon on the Mount, not many If you may have even remembered that it was in Matthew chapter 5, I certainly didn't when Paul asked me to preach on it. And it's not memorable because probably it doesn't seem very relevant to us today. Because who doesn't struggle with lust or anger, retaliation, hating your enemies? Those are common problems. But today, who swears an oath by Jerusalem? or swears an oath by your head. It just it seems out of place in the flow of this chapter. Oaths may have been common in the first century, but today they seem to be reserved only for weddings and for the courtroom. So I'm going to need to work hard. We're going to need to work hard together this morning to understand what is Jesus teaching here. But I hope to show you that this passage speaks with incredible power and relevance to us today if we're ready to hear it. And Jesus obviously thought that this topic was pretty important because he included it in this great sermon. So let me read the passage to you and then we'll pray. Again, it's Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Father, even as we sang this morning, our one desire is to lift high the name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would do that this morning. I pray that as I preach, I would be faithful to your word and be clear in my explanation of it. Help me to do that. And I help, help all of us to listen and to obey what your son Jesus is teaching us here. We pray for wisdom, for insight, Lord, and hearts that are ready to receive your word. And we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I'd like to approach this passage by asking four questions. The first question has to do with the first verse in the passage, verse 33. You can look at it. Again, that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And the question I'd like to ask is, what Old Testament command and practice is Jesus referring to in this verse? The second question pertains to verses 34 through 36. Do not swear an oath by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by your head. And the question I'd like to ask of those verses is, what first century perversion of oath-taking is Jesus denouncing? So what were the Jews doing in Jesus' day that caused him to give this rebuke in verses 34 to 36? The third question has to do with verse 37, where Jesus says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And my question is, what is this practice that Jesus is advocating instead of swearing oaths? And why is he advocating for this? And the fourth and final question is not directly connected to any specific verse in this passage, but it arises from the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount. And the question is, how is God glorified by our simple verbal integrity? And I hope to show you why this fourth question is an important one to ask. So we'll start with the first question. What Old Testament command and practice is Jesus referring to here? Now, if your Bible has cross-references, you can look the cross-references to this verse, and you'll see that what Jesus says here, it's not a direct quote of the Old Testament. Rather, what he says, it's a summary of a number of Old Testament passages that taught on oaths and vows. In an oath, as many of you probably know, 
a person called upon a higher power to support the truthfulness of what they were saying. As far as I could find, the first oaths in the Bible were sworn by Abraham and Abimelech. They swear the oaths to each other when they make a covenant at Beersheba all the way back in Genesis 21. But oaths are found throughout the Old Testament, and I think that we should understand three things about oaths in the Old Testament. First, when swearing an oath, you swear by something greater than yourself to make it binding. And in the case of Israel, they were to swear um, by the Lord. Their oaths were to be taken in the name of the Lord. And on the overhead, we have two verses from Deuteronomy 6 and 10 that illustrate this point. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Notice that? Israel's to swear by God's name. And the second verse is just like it. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. That's the first point I think we should understand about oaths. Second, oaths were very serious business. Uh, We have another verse from the Old Testament that I think is a good general statement of what uh, the Old Testament teaches about oaths. And you can notice the similarities between this verse and what Jesus says in Matthew 5.33. And it's Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now the penalty for breaking a vow or an oath was often death. We see that sometimes in the Old Testament. And so oaths were to be sworn by the Lord, and as a result, swearing an oath was a very serious matter, and it was considered binding. If you made an oath, you had to keep what you said. But there's one more thing that I want us to consider about oaths in the Old Testament that I think is really important for understanding what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, oaths were an indirect testimony to human weakness, unreliability, deception, and hard-heartedness. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, think about it for a moment. Why should a person need to take an oath in the first place? Why couldn't they just make a simple statement, say what they were going to do, or, you know, tell the truth? Why would they need to add an oath to something that they had say, said? Isn't it because humans are unreliable and they can be deceptive? Isn't an oath a preventative measure taken in order to safeguard the truthfulness of someone's word? Let me put it to you like this. In a perfect world, would there be any need for anyone to take an oath? No, you could just trust what they were going to say. You wouldn't need an oath because you could count on what they were going to say. So oaths were, as I said, an indirect testimony 
to human weakness, unreliability, and deception. And there are a number of Old Testament passages that we could look at to support this point. I just want to mention three briefly to illustrate this. And you don't have to turn to your to this passage in your Bibles, but first, in Numbers 5, 11 to 31, it's a somewhat strange passage describing what a husband can do if he suspects his wife of committing adultery, but he doesn't have any evidence for it. There's just something that makes him suspicious. And if you remember the passage, this man can take his wife that he suspects to a priest And then the priest will make her swear an oath that she has been faithful. And then she drinks what's called the water of bitterness. And if she has been unfaithful, that water will harm her and she will become a curse among the people. And so when we consider this passage, we'll ask, how is an oath functioning in this passage in Numbers 5? And apparently... The priest can't simply ask the wife, have you been faithful, and get a yes or no answer. That wouldn't be enough, because it's possible that she would just lie in that situation. And so as a safeguard against her lying, there's an oath that she has to take to prove her innocence. We see this idea also in another passage, 1 Kings 8, 31 and 32, and we also have this on the projector. Let me read it. This is an interesting passage to me. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants. Now, this is part of Solomon's prayer to God as he's dedicating the temple. And notice the sequence in the first verse. There's a man who sins against his neighbor and then is made to take an oath. So what's going on here? Well, the way that I read this verse is that the neighbor has been burned by this man. And somehow it comes to light the sin that this man has committed against his neighbor. And so the neighbor comes to the man and said, you've got to promise me you're never going to do this to me again. You're never going to sin against me in this way. And it's not enough for the man to say, okay, I won't do it, because he's already sinned against them and proved to be unreliable. And so it seems that the man is made to take an oath before the altar, promising to his neighbor that he won't sin against him in this way again. And if this is the best way to read these verses, then again we see that oaths are taken because humans cannot be relied upon to tell the simple truth. Let me mention just one more passage, and it's Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Now, Ezra chapter 9, Ezra has learned that the people of Israel have been unfaithful after they returned from the exile. They've been unfaithful and they've married with the foreign peoples of the land and have embraced their idolatry. And so Ezra weeps and prays for the people who respond by agreeing to separate themselves from their foreign wives and from the idolatry. And so what does Ezra do in response? He makes them 
take an oath to promise that they will keep themselves from this wickedness in the land. So again we see that oaths are taken in view of human weakness and unfaithfulness. An oath is taken to ensure that the people's commitment is reliable. So Numbers 5, 1 Kings 8, and Ezra 10 all show, I believe, that oaths were taken in ancient Israel to support the statements of those who could not be totally relied upon to tell the truth. Among the people of Israel, simple words were not enough. An oath needed to be taken. Last week, if you remember, Paul was preaching on divorce. And he mentioned in his sermon, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. Do you remember that passage when Paul was talking about it? In that passage, Jesus told the Pharisees that God's intention from the beginning was that marriage should last. And he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then the Pharisees, they ask Jesus, you know, what about Moses? Didn't he allow for a certificate of divorce? And then Jesus' response, do you remember? He said some pretty powerful words to the Pharisees. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So what Jesus is teaching in this passage in Matthew 19 is that in a perfect world, divorce would not be necessary. There would be no reason for provisions for divorce or laws concerning divorce. And the very fact that there is laws about divorce indirectly shows that humans cannot be relied upon. They're not always faithful. Sometimes they sin against each other. And I think that oaths and divorce are similar in this respect. The Old Testament made provisions for both divorce and for oaths, but divorce and oaths don't represent God's moral will for his people. Laws concerning oaths, like laws concerning divorce, are indirect witnesses to human unreliability and hard-heartedness. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration that would communicate this idea. And so here's what I came up with. Think of oaths as the training wheels on a bicycle. Okay? Remember training wheels when you were a kid? What is, what is the reason that a kid would need training wheels on a bicycle? Yeah, stay balanced. Because if the training wheels aren't there, what's going to happen? The kid's going to fall over. Right. So the training wheels are the safeguard from keeping the kid from falling off the bike while he learns to ride it. Right? So let me ask you another question. If you were to go outside today and you were to see a kid riding down Chadwick Street and you saw that there are training wheels on that kid's bicycle, what would you conclude? Yeah, the kid doesn't know how to ride the bike on his own. He needs those training wheels. Okay? Now think about oaths in a similar way. If you hear a person swearing an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, what are you going to conclude from that? Well, yeah, he's a liar or he could be. 
people are unreliable, right? The reason that they make people, you know, put their hand on a Bible and swear an oath is because everyone knows people sometimes lie. They're unreliable. And therefore, we're going to make you take an oath to ensure that what you are saying is trustworthy. And sadly, this was the reality in ancient Israel also, among God's people. We see again and again through the Old Testament, the vast majority of Israel could not always be counted on to tell the truth. And so God's law contained provisions for oaths to bolster the reliability of what people said. And despite having taken an oath, many times we read in the Old Testament about people breaking their oaths. So, let me leave you with this. There are three basic things that I want to communicate about oaths in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for understanding what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount means. The first, as we saw, oaths were to be sworn by something greater than yourself. In the case of Israel, oaths were to be sworn by the Lord or in the name of the Lord. Second, oaths were a serious matter. People were expected to keep their oaths and there were penalties in place to prevent you uh, from breaking your oath. And then third, and this I think is an important point to, to understand, oaths were legal concessions to human untruthfulness, or as I said, they are indirect witnesses to the fact that people can't always be counted on to tell the truth. In that way, oaths were like legal training wheels for people who can't ride the bike of truthfulness all the time. Our second question to ask this morning is, what first century perversion of oath-taking is Jesus denouncing? So if you have your Bible open still, look again at verses 34 to 36. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, what is Jesus talking about here in verses 34 to 36? Let me first say that I don't think you know, we can know 2,000 years later exactly what Jesus was referring to, the practices of the Jews in his day. But I think we can get a pretty good idea by looking at a couple of other passages it seems as, as if the practice had developed in the first century of people not swearing oaths in the name of the Lord, but by other things, by other objects. And the question is, why would someone do this? Why would someone swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem instead of by the Lord? And while this practice may have started as a sign of respect to God, most likely people began to develop uh, this practice of swearing oaths by other things than God as loopholes to get out of what they were promising to do or what they were saying. And I think that this interpretation is likely because if you look in verse 37, Jesus implies 
that these kind of oaths come from evil. He says there in the second half of the verse, anything more than this comes from evil. So it would appear that people had developed this practice of swearing by other things as loopholes to get out of what they were saying, and in that way they wouldn't view these oaths as really binding on themselves. And of course, this only works if one person knows that it's a false oath and the other person doesn't. Because no one's going to believe an oath, you know, when the other person, when they both understand that this is a bogus oath, a false oath, or empty oath. For example, you know, take a modern day example of, you know, their kids are often playing out in the tree outside, right, when we're leaving church. And what if there are two kids up there and one says to the other, you know, if you jump out of the tree first, I'll jump next. But then they're crossing their fingers while they say that, right? The only way the second kid is not going to jump out of the tree is if they know what this means, that, you know, when you cross your fingers, you don't have to keep what you say, right? So it seems like there was similar kinds of word games going on among the adults in Jesus' day. And then the Pharisees were trying to lay down rules for which kind of oaths were the equivalent of crossing your fingers and which kind of oaths were actually real and binding. And we, we see this later in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is a really important passage for understanding Matthew 5. It's the only other passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus teaches extensively on oaths. It's Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. And I'm going to read this so you can follow along as I read aloud. Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Notice what's going on here. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, the equivalent of crossing your fingers, right? But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the oath, the gift, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what's going on here in Matthew chapter 23? seems like there are, people are making oaths by all kinds of different sacred objects. And they only consider some oaths to be binding, and then the other oaths, they're nothing. They don't count for anything. So one person might swear an oath by the temple, and then they try to wiggle out of it by saying, well, I didn't really mean it because I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. If I had sworn by the gold of the temple, then it would have been binding. So in response to this, the Pharisees, they're trying to lay down some rules for which oaths are binding and which aren't, which are nothing. 
And the problem is that the Pharisees' reasoning is upside down. They thought that the gold in the temple and the gift on the altar were the sacred objects. And Jesus rebukes them and says, it's the temple that makes the gold sacred. It's the altar that makes the gift sacred. And God who sits on his throne in heaven makes everything sacred. So an effective or binding oath is ultimately effective or binding only because the oath itself is related to God. And I think Matthew 23, 16 through 22 helps us understand what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus is saying, in effect, don't swear an oath by heaven. Because the only reason that an oath sworn by heaven would be binding is because it is the place from which God reigns. So it's God and his reign that will make an oath effective. Then Jesus says, don't swear an oath by the earth. Because the only reason that an oath sworn by the earth would be effective is because it is the place over which God rules. It's his footstool. So again, only God and his rule make the oath effective. Then again he says, in effect, don't swear an oath by Jerusalem because the only reason an oath sworn by Jerusalem would be binding is because it is the special city of God, the great king. So only God, the great king, would make the oath effective. But of course, this doesn't explain verse 36 if you look at it. Jesus says there, do not take an oath by your head. And then he doesn't say, because God is the maker of your head. He says, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So what's going on here? Well, remember what we learned from the Old Testament. Oaths were to be sworn by something greater than yourself, some higher power that would make the oath binding. And the problem with swearing an oath by your head is that it represents your own person, your own power. And humans aren't powerful enough to make their oaths binding. Jesus says, you cannot make one hair white or black. Now his point here is not about whether you can dye your hair a certain color. And yes, in the ancient world they even had uh, hair coloring dyes. His point is that Humans cannot even control something so simple as their own hair color. They're powerless to do even that, such a small thing. So what power do we really have? We can't even control the color of a hair on our own head. Why would you swear an oath by your head? An oath sworn by your head is ineffective because the oath is not sworn by a power great enough to enforce it. So what's the bottom line? What's... What's Jesus' beef with the people who are making all these kind of oaths? It appears as if Jews in the first century had developed the practice of swearing oaths by something other than God himself. And I think what Jesus is saying is that oaths sworn by things that are sacred are only effective because God makes them sacred. And oaths sworn by things like your own head, those kind of oaths are completely ineffective. In either case, the logic has been turned upside down. And the Pharisees, among other Jews, had created a real complicated, nuanced system of which oaths were binding, which oaths weren't. And in the process, 
the practice of telling the plain and simple truth was lost. Furthermore, it seems as if Jews were using oaths to deceive each other. Remember what we read in Matthew chapter 23. The reason that Pharisees would even need to make rules about which oaths were binding and which oaths were nothing is because people were trying to trick each other by making empty and false oaths. Well, I don't really want to do what I said, so I'll swear an oath by the temple and not the gold of the temple, and that will trick the other person. And this is not a new problem within Israel. We see it even in the Old Testament. We have another slide, uh, Zechariah 8, 16 through 17. This is what God says to the people of the Old Covenant. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And notice again the sequence in verse 17. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You see the connection between the first two parts of verse 17? If you want to devise evil in your heart against someone else, you want to trick them, then you might swear a false oath to them. And God says, I hate that. And what does he say? He says, speak the truth to one another. So, turning back to the Sermon on the Mount, we ask our third question. What practice is Jesus advocating instead of the swearing of oaths? Now, you might think that if the people in Jesus' day were swearing oaths by all other kinds of things, that Jesus' teaching would be, swear your oaths in the name of the Lord, just like the Old Testament had taught. Right? You might assume that that's what he would teach. But if you notice in this passage, that's not what he says. Jesus is not advocating a simple return to the Old Testament law. Rather, he commands a radical new practice that doesn't contradict the Old Testament law, but it moves beyond it. His command is, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. That is the ESV translation that I've been reading from. Some of you may have the NIV, and I actually really like the way the NIV translates the first part of Matthew 5.37. It says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. And this verse, at least, is not very hard to understand. If you really mean yes, then say yes. If you really mean no, then say no. You don't need to take an oath. Just let your words stand for themselves. But we have to ask the question, why would Jesus be commanding what I'm calling simple verbal integrity instead of taking oaths? What's his reasoning? Why does he not command a return to the Old Testament law, but rather he's advocating that something that moves beyond it? And I think the answer lies in the fact that in the Old Testament, as we saw, Oaths were legal concessions to human unfaithfulness, untruthfulness. They were like the training wheels of a bicycle. 
indirect witnesses to the fact that the old covenant people could not be counted on to always tell the truth. So what Jesus is preaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is get rid of the training wheels. Don't use these legal crutches anymore. Just tell the simple truth in every situation and then you won't need oaths anymore. And how can Jesus command such a radical practice? It's because the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is bringing transformation to his people. Jesus' disciples won't be like the people of the old covenant, the hard-hearted people of Israel, because God is granting his people in the new covenant a new heart, a new spirit forgiveness of sins, and a new way of life. Remember that this entire sermon series is called Kingdom Living, right? The Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom, life under God's reign. And everything that Jesus says in Matthew 5-7, through I think, is based on on what he's already said in Matthew 4:17. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And if Jesus has begun to reign in your life, if he has cleansed you by his blood, if your life is built on the gospel, then you will be salt and light and you will be a truthful person, not perfect, but you will be a reliable person. Remember what I said about the kid riding down Chadwick Street with training wheels on his bike? Remember that? If you see those training wheels, you can be pretty sure that the kid riding that bike doesn't really know how to ride it. He needs the training wheels to keep him from falling over. But in and by the gospel, God has taught us how we are to live. We can now ride the bike of truthfulness. And we don't need the training wheels anymore. And in fact, if we keep the training wheels on our bike, we're telling a lie about what God has done in our life. And that's why I think Jesus says, don't swear an oath at all. It's just saying, tell the plain and simple truth. I like at this point to think about three points of application that are flowing from Jesus' command. Three points of application. First... If we're going to obey Jesus' teaching to let our yes be yes and our no be no, we should be wary of those statements people use to confirm their words, the truthfulness of their words. It's true that people don't take oaths by Jerusalem and by their own head today, but we use other statements, don't we, that are similar. We might say, have you heard this one? I swear by my mother's grave, right? Or, I swear that I'm telling the truth. Cross my heart, hope to die. Or, I guarantee this. Or, I'd be willing to shake on this. We have all these different kinds of phrases that confirm the truthfulness of our words. But if you think about it, what do those kind of statements imply? Don't they imply that our simple words are not trustworthy enough in themselves? Think about it. If someone asks you, um, 
question and you tell someone, you know, I'll do this or that. And then they ask, will you really do this? And you say, I swear by my mother's grave, I will. Okay? And then, after that, they believe you. Well, what does that imply? That they didn't believe your simple statement of what you were going to do in the first place. You must have been unreliable somehow in the past. They must not trust your simple words because they want more proof that what you're saying is true. Or as another example, and this one hits me right between the eyes, imagine that I tell my wife, listen, I won't be as busy this spring as I was last year. And she she looks at me and says, really? And I say, listen, I promise you, I really mean it, I swear I won't be as busy. Well, what would that kind of statement imply? It would imply that sometime last year I, had, I said to her, hey, I, I won't be too busy this year. And then that had proven to be untrue. And so now, and it's a new year, she says to me, really? Will you really not be as busy? And now I have to take some kind of quasi-modern-day oath to, to prove the truthfulness of what I'm saying. But if I had said I won't be as busy last year, and I had simply kept my word, then when I say it this time, she would be able to trust me. So as an application of Matthew 5.37, I would encourage you to catch yourself when you say something like, hey, I promise, or I really, really, really mean it, I swear to you, or I guarantee this, I, you know, let's shake on it. And if you catch yourself saying something like this, ask yourself, what does this statement indicate? about me. Does it mean that I've been unreliable somewhere in the past, that I've been untruthful with my words? Our words should not be strengthened by any kind of oath. Our words should be strengthened and backed up by the kind of life we live so that when we say something to another person, they immediately know that they can count on us. That's what should bring weight and strength to our words. Not any kind of oath, not kind of strenuous affirmations, but just a simple life that if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And if you say you can't do something, then you won't. A second application. Beware of statements that are only technically true. Remember what Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23 suggested. It suggested that people are playing these word games. They're you know, taking oaths by different objects. And the idea is that they wanted to deceive each other by what they were saying. And some of the adults in the room will remember Bill Clinton's famous line concerning Monica Lewinsky. Remember, he's challenged on it by a grand jury. He had said, there is nothing going on between us. And they were questioning him. And his response, you remember what it was? It was, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Right? Real slick answer. And I suggest to you that that's a modern day equivalent of swearing by the temple, but not the gold in the temple. Right? But it isn't just Bill Clinton or politicians who do this kind of thing. Like all of us can be tempted to say things that are 
technically true, but we know that when other people hear them, they're going to interpret them in different ways. But we somehow think that we're off the hook because, well, you know, I can bend it this way and it appears true to me, you know, but you're all the while misleading someone else. And we should not be people like that. We should be people who tell the plain and simple truth. No word games. No clever ways of bending and twisting our words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here's the third application. Be careful in what you say. Be careful. Think before you say yes to something. Only say it if you really mean it. I think we are all too often flippant and careless with our words, even in church. Someone may come up to you after the service today, and they may describe a trial or a hardship that they're going through, and what would you say? You'd say, I'll be praying for you, right? What if you walk away and forget to pray for them? You don't actually do it. Well, in that case, you've told a lie. Your yes has not been yes. Or if someone asks you, you know, we really need help, you know, next Saturday with this event, or please consider participating in this ministry, and you say, sure, sure, I can do that. And then later, you have to back out of it. Well, in that case, you've lied. Your word has not been reliable. And biblically speaking, this is really serious stuff. Many of you know that the the book of James is packed with all kinds of practical wisdom. But near the end of the book, notice what James says. There's a verse to look at. Remember, after the whole book, everything that he says, in James 5.12, he says, But above all, he doesn't say that before in the book, but he says it here, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, let your yes be yes or your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 